0: Welcome to episode 236 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist, Markham Hislop. Economist Kevin Byrne of S&P Global is one of my favorite experts. He's an expert on the Alberta oil sands specifically, and more generally on the emissions of global crude oil and gas. I've been interviewing him since 2016 and love his data-driven nerdy analysis, even when I don't completely understand it, which is probably most of the time. Today, I'm gonna to do something a little different. I'm gonna disagree with him a bit. Kevin is one of the co-authors of the new S&P Global Report, The North American Advantage, Secure Oil and Gas Production. And we're gonna talk about that, so welcome to the interview, Kevin.
1: Hi, Mark, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, look, I, this is your first time on Energy Talks. I mean, we've gone 235 episodes and not had you on. I don't know how that happened. I, I interview you so often on the shorter video interviews that we did. And I can't believe that we haven't had you on for a good chinwag uh, over uh, over oil and gas demand and emissions.
1: Yeah, honestly, I, I thought we had, but I probably hadn't. We just talk enough. So it's a, well, it's a pleasure to be here today.
0: Yeah, well, I, it's great to have you. So look, take us through the... Uh, I was going to say the argument, but you don't like uh, the, the term argument. So take us through the the report. Tell us what it's about. Well,
1: we released a report uh, this month where we highlighted the benefit of the abundance and growth in North America from the hydrocarbon industry. Basically, since 2008, which was a 62-year low for the U.S. system on crude oil, North America has converted its its fortunes. It's gone from one of a world, and you and I, Markham will remember that world it was one where we thought of the, the increasing scarcity in the availability of liquids specifically. and we saw the world becoming heavier and more dominated by longer cycle, more costly forms of supply. But then we saw a great reversal of that. and since 2008, we saw on a liquid side or a total side, Canada U.S. reverses production by almost 20 million barrels of oil equivalent over that period. Um, and the North America as a whole system now is producing about 41 million barrels of oil equivalent. Equivalent, And just so everybody is very clear, when we say barrel of oil equivalent, we're talking about oil and gas. So people right. that are familiar with oil will go, those numbers are nuts. And people familiar with gas are like, I can't think about it in BOEs. I have to have them think about it in BCFs. So they, they may not appreciate those numbers, but it is a staggering volume uh, makes North America the largest producer and uh, reproducing region in the world.
0: Okay. So before we came on the interview, you and I were talking and I said, my frame for this is the fast energy transition versus slow energy transition argument. So the IEA, the International Energy Agency says that the Fossil fuels are going to peak by 2030 or sooner, and that'll lead to declines in production, decline in demand and presumably decline in production in the in the 2030s. The OPEC and the Saudis, on the other hand, are the proponents of the uh, slow energy transition, and I should say that, you know, the Alberta industry and, and Alberta Premier Daniel Smith are vocal proponents of that, and they think that demand is going to grow into 116 million barrels a day by 2045. There'll be a long plateau and then a slow decline. So they, in, in a way, they're arguing almost for a golden age of North American hydrocarbons. And I side, as I've said very clearly in columns and on this podcast before, I side with the IEA on this. I think the evidence is uh, shows that we're the, the the energy transition is going to begin destroying hydrocarbon demand sooner than we expect. and even, frankly, even sooner than the IEA is modeling. So that's where I'm coming from. Um, within that context, but Kevin, you have a point of view about the importance of that demand, how that demand that Production is is likely to respond to changes in global demand that, and maybe I'm I'm explaining this awkwardly, but give us your take.
1: Well, let me let me back up and just stay in history because we, we can all agree what the history was, or hopefully we can all agree what the history is, <laughs> right? Um, I would say the the hydrocarbon change of fortunes in North America um was driven first and foremost by the evolution of multi-stage horizontal fracking. Um, And also the Canadian oil sands, but we'll start with shale, shale gas, shale gale, that led to the shale oil revolution. And that led to the fastest, most unprecedented growth in oil production we've ever seen on the planet in the United States, the pace and scales without comparison. In Canada, we had the development of the Canadian oil sands. It began before the shale gale, but it's a slower mover. And it was the evolution of horizontal, again, horizontal drilling. Unlocking the thermal oil sands deposits, which are narrow and wide, so you needed to drill horizontally more more or less. And combined, these two sources of supply uh, drove U.S. gas production to a great deal. And it took market share from Canadian gas, and only recently is it Canadian gas coming back, really. Um, And the Canadian production was heavy and found a home in a heavy demanded market that was built principally because of Latin American heavy that had fallen away. And the U.S., found a home in the light market and increasing volumes eventually went offshore and made U.S. one of a, a world's larger exporters now, too. The benefit of this is it sheltered the North American system um, from the price voltage, particularly on the gas si- side, where we saw the strains uh, in 2022 with gas prices in Europe over 80 percent higher than they were in North America. And so we really benefited. And the reason I raise this, mark, a really important point is The the fact, you know, whatever happens to oil demand right now is the world remains hydrocarbon powered, And the prices really will drive political instability or geopolitical instability. So high prices are not sustainable. It's very hard for governments to maintain stability through that. And so having, you know, affordable, predictable, accessible prices for the things we still need, is very important to maintain that policy stability that frankly the companies need to make the investment decisions to decarbonize over the longer run too. And so having pendulum swing on policy because of price instability and security is not advantageous in any way to energy transition.
0: Okay. So um, the thing that's different from 2008 when the shale gale started is the rise of electric transportation. That's the thing, The it doesn't matter whether you IEA or Bloomberg or the, the Oxford Institute of Energy Study, everybody models this and it's the electrification of road transportation that's going to uh, uh, lead to the immediate peaking and and, and decline of, of oil demand. And that's something we've never seen before. And, you know, 125 years of oil production in North America, uh, oil has never had a competitor. And now it does have a competitor. And I have argued in columns that that the industry, and, and Kevin, you talk to these guys all the time, so maybe you can set me straight if I'm wrong, but the industry understands its business incredibly well. There's no doubt that in the Calgary uh, office towers, There is world-class expertise. They are not stupid people. They get it. The thing that they don't understand, though, is their competition. And there have been lots of incumbents, big incumbents in the past, whose uh, business model was disrupted by some new product or technology or whatever it was. And the incumbent knew its business. It didn't know the competition. And eventually it failed. And I would argue, sir, that this is in fact what we're seeing today. Is that the uh, oil and gas industry based in Calgary does not understand how quickly transportation is going to be electrified and the role that China is going to play in driving that electrification? That's that's my that's my point. Perhaps you could respond to it.
1: Well, there's a couple. There's a lot of different things there. Um, so I, I would talk to you know I'm not our EV or mobility expert, so I'm not going to dig down into that piece. I don't think I can respond to that in all honesty. But I will say the other piece of this equation, and you and I have talked about this many, many times, and right now we're talking about liquids. This That North American piece was gas-driven too. Uh, so, and gas is actually bigger volume, interestingly, than liquids, as much as tension we put on liquids. Um, but I think part of this equation is people want to opine about future oil demand, and I think it's really relevant for strategic planning and understanding competitiveness. The other piece of this is that the supply is not constant so the supply we talk about today is not going to be the supply we'll see tomorrow oil and gas production for the most part is a wasting asset what what do i mean by that when you drill a well the minute you bring that well online you're depleting an asset you've tapped into and those depletion rates vary around the world and so what do you have to do you have to constantly replace it so you'll hear people in the oil and gas industry talk about being on a treadmill and that means that's the pace that they have to find and discover and bring on something new to replace what they've just drilled, frankly. And those declines vary around the world. So North America is quite unique, and since I, I think we have two extremes, uh, we have shale, which is some of the steepest decline world, wells in the in the planet. So in 18 months, you can capture I think 85% over of that what you what you intended to capture which makes them very attractive, but also very low risk for being able to recoup your capital and investing them, right? The other side of this beast is the oil sands, which on a yearly basis has negligible decline rates. It does decline, but it has negligible design decline rates. So it's incredibly resilient and you don't have to do that exploration in the, the same degree you have to do other things. So there's this debate about the future demand and EVs and what's it gonna look like. You have to look at the supply equation too is the industry going to invest what's needed to bring new supply on that will exceed demand, meet demand or fall short of demand. And that's what will set your price over the long run between those equations. And frankly, it's that price that determines the value of these companies over the longer term more than anything else. So, and even if, even if you have a declining oil demand scenario, that doesn't prevent a company from taking market share from one of its competitors, and it doesn't define necessarily what makes you competitive over the long run. Do you have a place to take that? What's the products that you're going to produce from it? And you and I have talked about the products and some of the investments being made in Canada in trying to find more non-combustible uses of the hydrocarbons being produced as well. So anyways, I just add that I look at both sides. You have to consider the decline, not just what's the demand are going to be as well.
0: No, I think that's a very interesting point. And I, and I will admit that I haven't paid as much attention to that as as I perhaps should have. And so I'm really glad we're having this conversation. Um, so let's talk, but let's talk about that. What do you make then of the, the, the super majors crowding into the Permian Basin? That is far and away the biggest uh, basin in the U.S. today it was made possible by the the multi multi uh, the horizontal drilling and multi stage fracking that you talked about earlier, and but what we've seen like I remember I again uh, I was working in the in the industry uh, and and in Texas while that was starting to take place and and I remember that it was driven by independents the pioneers of the world. And then we started seeing Exxon get into it in a, in a big way, and and, uh, and, other, and other companies. And, and now the the super majors like Exxon are buying up the uh, buying up the independents. I think they just bought Pioneer, which was the biggest independent. So, what does that say for the long term future of of shale production if the if the if the uh, the big companies uh, see opportunity there?
1: well maybe I'll step back I don't I don't know if I fully understand your question but I'll, I'll feel you like one of the things we like to say about the transition for uh, North America or generally and this is a line we came up with around carbon intensity but I think it's true for asset performance generally um we say it's best to be young and privileged in the transition if you're in upstream what do I mean by that well I mean young young means a young play you know a young play being still very productive, have lots of opportunity to run on that treadmill and drill incrementally highly productive wells. What's privilege mean? Privilege means in terms of owning or having access to the most productive acreage. Like a a play is not homogeneous. Where you place your well, you can drill into low productive zones or high productive zones. And the multiple in performance between these areas can be massive. So the economics can be massive. So if you're in the Permian, it doesn't necessarily mean you're in the good spot. You can be in a bad spot. And so what do I mean by this line, the young and the privilege? Well, that means that you have the best acreage in a young play, which means you have a long run of productivity. As your productivity declines, as you deplete these plays, you're going to be fighting economics because your productivity of how much yield you get from drilling that well so how much volume you get to that well will fall so your profitability falls but your carbon intensity also goes up at the same time because it, it's carbon intensity is just simple ratio of emissions divided by output right so if your output falls so you're in, in this way carbon intensity and economics work in the same direction and so what's the interest in the Permian? this is some of the most prolific wells still have running room and if you're a big operator, you're looking out of a long run. I need acreage. I need assets in my portfolio to run through a longer timeframe. And maybe I don't want to do exploration and production to the same degree anymore because my investors are more interested in my return on cash flow or return on investment rather than funding exploration and production because they discount uh, the future more heavily because of what you talked about earlier which is the risk posed by the penetration of electric vehicles in developed nations to take away future consumers, gasoline and diesel, which will impact the oil demand. And so you see the potential for less investment in exploration production already today, and then maybe less investment over time or fighting that productive decline um, as, as plays mature for further out in the future, which means every incremental well may produce less in the future. And so you have declining, the declining supply.
0: I, I, what I was getting at with that question was, does the the crowding in of the, of the super majors into the Permian argue for a longer life and less supply decline from of American production, which, you know, is around 13 million barrels a day now. Uh, but let's now talk about the supply on the heavy crude side. Because as you've schooled me over the years, uh, there's 5.5 million barrels of heavy crude refining capacity in the U.S., most of it in the Midwest and the U.S. Gulf Coast. And, and Canada uh, supplies about, I think, about 3 million barrels, Alberta supplies, 3 million barrels of that from the oil sands, roughly?
1: The oil sands producing about 3.2, 3.2, 3.3, by, maybe a little bit higher by
0: Christmas, no. Yeah, something like that. So, but we've seen on the the competitors in that market are primarily from the Latin American countries. So Venezuela, Mexico, Colombia, uh, Brazil, uh, and so on. And what we've seen is Venezuela dropped its production uh, after the American sanctions just fell off a cliff. I mean, it, it's it's they're just now beginning to open it up there's some talks between the biden administration and, and the venezuelan government and sanctions are going to ease and they're hoping they they can ramp that back up but then uh last year uh mexico said that it was going to take its six hundred thousand barrels of mexican maya uh, out of the export market because they wanted to to refine it at home and so Would you argue that it looks like maybe the the competitive supply in the American market of heavy crude oil is more volatile or likely to decline today than we might have thought a year or two ago?
1: Oh, that's hard. Uh, so just so everybody gets an appreciation, the heavy oil market's a fraction of the global market. You know, the crude's fudgible, and you can process it in different refinery configurations, but you get less profitability from that because you end up with more intermediate product that you have to subsequently sell to somebody else. Right. So I would argue that, you know, if you look at the heavy oil market, it is it has a, it has looked tight from a balanced point of view. And the Canadian supply has been the only material source of growth in the world. Um, yeah, Venezuela, they're easing the sanctions, but the issues in Venezuela are economic mismanagement that run for decades and they dig, they, they're deep. We have assets that have run down. We have significant capital that would be required to do material changes to the production profile over the longer term. And human capital. We forget that this is a all these things take human capital. And a lot of those people have left. They're in Houston and Calgary and other places, and they've taken their knowledge with them. So I I think if you think about Canada, it's found a nice home in the United States, first in the Midwest, and we've seen some refinery conversions many years ago to convert to take take more Canadian heavy sour. And then in the Gulf Coast, similarly, but those refineries in the Gulf Coast were configured years ago to run Latin American crude that has declined. And so to some degree, the growing Canadian supply has found a home in the market and a welcome home from the refining side of the complex, looking to welcome those Canadian barrels into the market. Canadian supply though has, I'd say, time to time overwhelmed even the US demand in the Gulf Coast, and we've seen Canadian barrels be exported off the Gulf Coast uh, to the global market as well.
0: Okay, Um, so what do you think, I know you economists hate looking into the future, but is what you just said an argument for demand for heavy uh heavy crude or canada's heavy crude oil uh staying strong or is it uh you know uh, something else well we've found that
1: the u.s gulf coast complex to be one of the most competitive refining regions on the planet so in that sense and by competitive you know um i don't want to use the word profitable that's not that's not a good word for this but um Able to manage through diversity and have um, and flexibility to reach different markets and flexibility of access to supply. Um, in that sense, I think that does advantage Canadian Barrels, in since it has that home waiting for it to some degree and a very resilient competitive environment that operates to make end use product and access to tidewater than to export those products offshore, to, you know. What happens in North America may not happen in the world and compete internationally for those refined products. I'd say another critical critical piece for Canada has been the advancement of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. You know, the in in when I think about transition, the most valuable thing for an upstream company is optionality. And so, while the U.S. system has advantaged Canada because of its competitiveness and its existing configuration, it's still landlocked. The Canadian barrels are still landlocked. <laughs> and and somewhat um, subject to whatever the decisions of those refineries in the U.S. market make. TMX is unique in the sense that it'll provide Canadian producers their own access to Tidewater. And Tidewater is maximum optionality in the sense that you literally then have access to the world market. And it, that barrel or that ship can flow to that highest price point internationally wherever it is as supply and demand changes around the world.
0: Yeah, you mentioned in the past that once you get uh, crude oil on a ship, the costs per barrel are, are just minuscule, like like maybe two dollars a barrel to get to to uh, an international market. Uh, so you can see why like TMX uh, would be would be really important. So we've talked about a lot of different aspects of this, Kevin, and you know the, the supply issue around shale, uh, the low decline. Uh, and increasingly lower cost uh, production uh, production costs of of the oil sands. Uh, if if you how does that fit into this report that you've uh, co-authored about secure oil and gas production? Well,
1: if you look at the North American sphere, the oil sands and frankly the shale, the U.S. shale and the techniques in U.S. shale which are and have been deployed in Canada to great success as well to grow production of unconventionals in Canada. Almost, almost every well now in Canada is horizontal, which is interesting. Um, it's one of those pillars of supply. And because that the oil sands are different and they serve a different market need than shale, which is a light barrel, they've been s- synergistic. And we've seen the imports from offshore decline on a net basis dramatically because the U.S. has targeted or pushed out light barrels and Canadians pushed out heavy barrels from uh, elsewhere in the world. And that's insulated or mutes the impact. And we've been talking about liquids a lot. Similarly, with gas, muted the impact of the energy crisis we saw in Europe. And without that growth, the idea of trying to get Europe off of Russian gas and liquids would have been demonstrably more challenging than it is because of the, the prolific growth of both gas and liquids in the North American sphere. And those, that has been a positive influence for price stability, both in North America, but probably in the longer term in the global market as well.
0: What about the domestic American market? Because um, I, I can't remember if I mentioned it earlier, but the the uh, consumption peaked at 21 million barrels a day in around 2007, 2008, it's now 19 million barrels a day. Electrification is forecast to reduce that even more. Uh, But uh, as you say, shale is uh, a light uh, grade, uh, a light oil. And so it's going to be used to make gasoline, a lot of gasoline and the heavy goes into bunker fuel or, uh, heating oil, uh, aviation fuel and so on Just, yeah, yeah. So does that mean that at, and I should say <clears throat> gasoline is forecast to uh, decline faster than diesel, which is used a, a, a lot in freight and industry and rail, rail and, and other mm-hmm. markets. So does that mean that in fact, if we're going to see a decline in the. US market, we're likely to see it on the on the light crude side. Uh, serving the, the gasoline markets rather than on the distillate side, uh, which would which would use the cr- the heavy crude from Alberta.
1: The quick conclusion you may might get there, and I'm not the down da- I'm not a downstream refined prana expert, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. <clears throat> but refiners will optimize based on price and availability, and so if there is a commensurate price impact on the light side and um, then you could see refineries trying to maximize the lowest cost feedstock to produce the maximum value products. And so it's, you know, it's not likely that heavy will become unscathed in a demand scenario that sees some decline as well. And it comes down to geography and access. The one thing that North America, because of the volume it produces, the crudes in North America tend to trade down to the global market. And that's just the cost to access to the global market. That's why the price of oil is so much less in Western Canada than it is in the Gulf Coast, because it's closer to the global market. And so that incentivizes refineries to consume domestic um, uh, volumes to some degree. But uh, I'm not going to opine a degree of which one wins or the other. But certainly diesel is seen to be a more resilient um, fuel because of its energy density and its use case versus gasoline. But it'll probably impact both. And some, even though oil sands does have a higher distillate yield, is not totally sheltered from gasoline
0: either. Is there a scenario in which uh, decline, <clears throat> the demand begins to decline, <clears throat> supply remains fairly robust because you know you've got a lot of companies. Not all the uh, producers in the world are owned by private investors. Uh, some of them are not. Na- most of them are national oil companies that desperately require that revenue to run their, their governments and social programs. So the argument is that they're not just, just even if they're uneconomic, they're not just going to go away nicely the way economic theory would suggest. But So is there a scenario where the declining uh, demand leads to price volatility and consistently low prices? And if that happens, what happens to Alberta's heavy crude?
1: The scenario, well, it comes down. It, it, it comes down to the decline rate. What happens to the prices in it? In a, a declining <laughs> demand scenario, if the decline rate globally uh, from the exhaustion of resources is greater than the decline of the demand for the products at the end, that means your prices will be very high. If commensurately the demand falls faster than the natural dec- decline of, of production, then your prices will be low until someone is pushed, to, pushed out of the market. And then the prices will recover, right? And so that's the that that is the crux of I think most of the arguments going on around the world, right? Like or on these scenarios, is which of these scenarios play out. But the your investing, people t- t- talk about these oil companies as homogeneous entities that work in some sort of coordinated fashion. They're far from that. They're very heterogeneous in many many ways. And ultimately, there's another actor here we're not talking about, and that's the investor. You're right. Some of these companies are Nocs, but even them, they have investors and they have imperatives to return cash, generate cash. Uh, many of them support governments, um, which in a low price scenario is not pretty picture over a longer period of time. Right? In the private sector or the public, I should say, the public markets, there's investors that own these companies and they have different priorities than necessarily the oil companies. And those priorities right now are about returning cash and cash flow returns to them. And so in a transition story and it gets more aggressive, you could see further discounting of future uh, production in favor of cash flow. And I think we've already seen some of that from the investment community, longer lead time projects being discounted more heavily versus shorter cycles. So we've seen more cash flow into things like tidal oil than we have seen in deep water offshore or even the oil sands. And that's because of its ability to return cash in a very short period of time. Let me let me just. Um, so in the oils in the tight world vein in Permian, you can get your cash out in, say, two to three years for your investment. I think you and I could agree what oil demand will probably look like in 2026, 2027, right? Like that. So that's pretty low risk versus something like a deep water or an oil sands new where you would think about maybe seven years or deep water. It could be 15 years. You're going to discount that very heavily or much greater degree because of your concerns about the degree at which that will return your cash. What's the future oil price going to look like in 2033? That's a different proposition from risk. And so we are already seeing that affect some capital flows.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question because I've I've been through the uh, oil sands companies' investor presentation, and most of them are returning 75% of their free cash flow to investors. I mean, that, that strikes me as a, you know, a, a very large percentage uh, compared to historical uh, numbers. Uh, is that a fair observation?
1: I'm not an equity analyst, so I'm not gonna say that, but I will say, you know, again, <clears throat> the one thing that is common between these companies, they compete for, with each other. So the oil sands will compete with that investment in the Permian for return, right? And that's how they get their money. So they have to compete. And that's what we've seen generally is an increasing return of capital from upstream particularly in North America to Wall Street. And so for the oil sand companies, oil sands companies compete, they've got to return that cash to be able to get the investor's interest and it affects their equity price. The advantage of the oil sands is that the the they have these large established installed constructed operating facilities that gives them a relatively low cost to maintain and produce oil for an extended period of time. And shale it's about capital investment in drilling new wells. And needing the capital to continue to stimulate that incremental production to offset the much steeper declines you see there.
0: Yes, uh, you've made this point many times during our our interviews that the you know the production costs have come down quite a bit uh, in the last uh, let's say ten years, and we're probably now looking at uh, West Texas Intermediate break evens of of what between thirty and forty dollars.
1: Yeah, it depends on the oil price. They move around because they buy inputs from. So the higher the price, the higher the break because they got to buy natural gas and they got to buy diluent and stuff like that. The lower the the oil price, it almost acts like a little bit of a cushion on both ends for them. Right. So
0: um, yeah. But, but what would you say? I, I, was I correct in the 30 to $40 range? Um, You could go 25 to
1: 40. I'd say it capture most of them. Yeah. And that's a half cycle break even. So that's not an operating cost they'll publish in their financials. This includes equivalency to WTI, so quality differentials, transportation costs, diluent, natural gas, those sorts of things as well. But that allows us to have an apple to apple comparison with other kind of producers um, and when we talk about that. But it's also, they don't, you know, the other thing it's important to note when we talk about oil sands production growth that we're seeing and we have seen, it's almost all about optimization now. It's not about incremental projects. And certainly some of them have projects or they'll call them projects, but it's, it's dominated by squeezing those assets to improve uptime, reduce downtime, produce more output, and that reduces their operating costs and also reduces their carbon intensity in the process. So it is a, a win-win scenario for them. And that's where we're seeing almost all the growth we have in our, our production forecast for them. And so it isn't about building something new. It's about maximizing what they have to produce. And that's different uh, than a lot of other resources in the planet. Um, because they don't, a lot of other resources simply don't operate with installed capacity. It's more, oil sands, I think, has more in common with offshore than it does have with conventional or unconventionals.
0: Sure. And I mentioned earlier the Canadian Energy Regulators modeling that shows that uh, the compliance costs to decarbonize, and for the most part, that's going to be carbon capture and storage. Uh, The Pathways Alliance, which is kind of the trade association for the oil sands producers, has estimated that decarbonization will cost about $75 billion. And they're hoping that governments will kick in $50 billion. We'll see how that plays out. Not so well for them so far, uh, but that that could change in the future. Um, But the Canadian energy regulator, when it did its modeling, uh, assumed that they would pay most of the costs of of decarbonization that then raises, raises their production costs to the point where they're not necessarily competitive and we see in the beginning in the 2030s some decline in production what do you have a, a take on that
1: it comes down to the degree at which they make these investments at the same time and the pace at which they make them and how that affects their cash flow and so, you know, the, as we try to accelerate the speed at which they do that, that does represent a cost. And some of these policies will make those investments more economics. You know, so you're increasing the cost or the value to abate, but it still represents a net cost to them, which can reduce their competitiveness. And that, that, the implications of reducing their competitiveness are ones that lead to questions around a degree at which this could result in some carbon leakage from Canada and other countries and with them the investment opportunity.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to watch the the oil sands companies because they would, if they had their druthers, uh, they don't. I mean, they get the the the, the need to uh, decarbonize. They've they've understood this for a long time, being carbon competitiveness, and we'll we'll talk about the mark markets and and carbon competitiveness in just a moment. But the, the so what they would uh, prefer is don't rush us. We've got technology coming, maybe small modular reactors where we get both electricity to electrify our operations plus some heat so we can get rid of uh, you know burning natural gas in our, our boilers, uh, but that's not gonna come around maybe at the earliest till the 2030s. The oil sands I, I I think would prefer if climate policy would just back off for a bit and give them a chance to develop some of this technology and deploy it at much lower costs. So deploying it quicker, increases their cost would you agree with that
1: uh well yeah. the more you build at one time is more cost at one time so yeah you said a lot of different things there I don't know if I I, I don't think I can comment as it relates to the companies I'm not I don't work at these companies so
0: okay fair enough and I'm inferring a, my conclusions I'm inferring a lot from their comments and and what they write in their in their but, reports and so on so Markham I don't but,
1: think the challenge is you know if you look at the oil sands why why are they looking at CCS right? Um, you know, so the oil sands, you know, you, you can look at different profiles, different resources. They all have different challenges around abatement. And when you look at the oil sands, it's because they generate, the emissions occur from the combustion of natural gas to produce heat. They need the thermal energy and nothing really beats natural gas right now for that. And at the same point in time, they also have a lot of installed boilers that are, that are legacy to some degree, right? So it makes sense for them to go after the post-combustion emissions and try to get rid of those if you're in the unconventionals, you're, you're probably burning natural gas in Western Canada, but but you're probably je- burning it for electricity. And so then you start to see them looking towards the electrification. And and a lot of our growth area or a lot of the growth area in Western Canada, and even in, in Texas are close to, in the Texas it's it's wind power. And in Canada, it's hydro up in the Montney region and North British Columbia and Grand, pra- uh, Grand Prairie region of Alberta those so you see them looking electrification it doesn't mean it's easier um in electrification you've got to build transmission infrastructure and if if you never spent time up there it's not the easiest place to build transmission infrastructure um you have to get the the power system the hydro grid. to agree to that you have to negotiate rates uh it's it's a lot of steel and concrete that have to be built both in the oil sands and the unconventional so there's a lot of material challenges and there is a physical speed limit to the pace at which one can pour those things given the availability of labor.
0: Fair enough. Well let's talk about the the market pricing emissions intensity. I know this is a big focus of your work these days. You and I have had a, a conversation about this. Uh, can you just kind of lay out the uh, where we're at with that?
1: Yeah, sure. yeah. So we're at S;P, we're very involved in building carbon intensity estimates across entire value chains. And one of the reasons we're interested in this space is that we've seen an increasing number of or increasing evidence of interest in the global commodity markets, both buyers and sellers, of trying to price in carbon intensity or relative emissions or environmental performance into the transactions. So since 2019, for example, we've seen over 25 examples of carbon-accounted trades. So that's some sort of emission accounting incorporated into the trade. And then this would be of LNG, crude oil, condensates, and LPGs. It doesn't mean it necessarily affected the price, but there was information exchanged around the emissions of those commodities. We also see movements internationally on in regulations like the carbon border adjustment mechanism. You certainly that doesn't cover oil and gas right now, but by all accounts it will. And the point is to try to understand the environmental footprint from an emission standpoint of commodities being sold into Europe. And then we see uh measures such as mandatory scope three disclosure. I mean, Kevin, those are about companies, that's different than what you're talking about. I don't think so. If you have to disclose your uh scope three, which is the emissions that are associated indirectly associated with your product. So in upstream oil and gas, it's your end use would dominate. And we've talked about that many, many times. But if companies actually have to start to account for that and disclose that on a systematic basis, you'll start to understand different choices are available to you in commodities based on their environmental footprint. And if you have to disclose it, maybe you'll start making those choices. And in that choice choosing between the providers based on the intensity, like right now, I'd say the value between those two things is zero. There is no value difference. But in making those choices, you will affect supply and demand and start to drive a differential. Today, I don't think the market has been able to do this internationally because of the lack of consistency in how these things are being reported. And comprehensive data sets. So a lot of the corporate, a lot of the disclosure is at the corporate level, which doesn't really tell you what a transaction on a commodity would look like in a cargo vessel or tell you what an individual asset would look like for an MA. And I think the other one is data, it's transparency. You know, if you and I are to agree on a deal, Mark, and we have to we have to believe one another. We have to have a degree of trust and you, we need to be able to communicate the quality of those estimates and in what we see happening out there there is varying degrees of quality and robustness there's companies that have very uh, robust monitoring verification you know multi layer sensors for methane and there's companies that are using factors and unless we as you know I'm pretending we're buyers now Mark, unless we as buyers can be provided the information how are we to transact on it and there's um, so we've been we've been very active in this space but the point and why this is so material is a lot of the policy implications for upstream and other sectors for decarbonization, there is a limit to the speed limit because of concerns around carbon leakage. And that's the degree at which you shuffle investment elsewhere and drive emissions higher. But if the international community can incorporate carbon into the valuations of commodities and assets and other things that can help level the trading, the playing field internationally and globally, and start making transactions make really matter. And drive carbon differentiation you and i debate about the supply the future of uh, oil demand but i think we both agree it's going to get used for a long time to varying degrees if that's the case then what we need to do is we need to reduce the emissions of that profile and allow those barrels that are more competitive to gain get rewarded for that and those companies that are making those investments be rewarded for it too i think that's an important part
0: okay based on the uh the emphasis that s&p global is putting into coming up with those uh, carbon intensity estimates what looking out a little bit into the future i, don't know, I, I you always tap dance around when I, when i when i ask you these kind of questions but i'll ask it anyway when are we likely to see the the market uh, start pricing uh, carbon uh, or sorry emissions intensity
1: well we've already seen test cargoes Right. We see very material things like the carbon border adjustment mechanism that will impact uh, things like aluminum, uh, cement and chemicals. And I think it's a matter of time for that expansion. And we are seeing efforts such as the U.S. government has an effort to build a framework around LNG certified natural gas for LNG as well. So I think there's all these incremental pieces. I don't know when, Markham, you know, we think about the markets today. They took hundreds of years to form to where we are today. And the market, I, I I do think there's a lot of good work going on to accelerate this piece. And there is a lot of interest in the market. And I am tap dancing because I don't have the yes, answer. Yes, you are.
0: Yeah, that's but fine. Is, I, I, that, you know what? The fact that you don't have an answer uh, is a good answer. But I think there's nothing wrong with
1: that. There is a lot of people that agree that this is important and are working towards it. Um, And so I do think it's coming.
0: And uh, for listeners, uh, I two, three weeks ago, I interviewed Aaron Cosby, an economist, who was talking about the, uh there's a bill before Congress. It's actually sponsored by three Republican senators, if you can believe it, and including one of them is, is well-known, uh, Lindsey Graham. Um, and it's about pricing uh, carbon pollution. And so the, even in the United States, which has been absolutely allergic to carbon pricing and to carbon taxes, uh, even the Republicans are beginning to understand that you know, the energy transition is a thing and decarbonization is a thing and the United States has to begin grappling with it. So I guess that would would underscore your argument, Kevin, that the markets and governments are slowly moving in this direction and they're moving slowly enough that it's very it's hard, to, you know, to, to forecast when this might become a factor uh, for North American crudes. But it's something on the horizon, something to keep track of.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to appreciate that when we talk about international initiatives, which is really what's required here, these are multi-stakeholder, often consensus-based processes, and those take time. There's a lot of complexity. It's like negotiating a
0: treaty. Right. Okay. So, you know, it, it ain't happening tomorrow. We know that. Um, well, look, Kevin, this has um, been a fascinating conversation, as all conversations with you are. Um if you had to wrap it up just what are the implications of the trends we've been talking for, about for alberta for alberta
1: um well is uh, it
0: let me put it this way is it is it the status quo likely to be you know to continue off into the future uh, or are we going to see, you know, changes in the market, changes in policy that are that are going to affect Alberta, uh, how it operates and and the rate at which it decarbonizes and maybe the amount that it of, of product that it supplies?
1: I would say that we are in an energy transition. It's not if we are, we are and it's happening um, right now. It's been probably more of an energy dilution. But it is happening. We're seeing penetration of EVs and renewables, and a great deal of investment. I, I I think that decarbonization as an industrial region in Western Canada is a, is important to have strategies and policies in place to figure out how to compete over the long term and in multiple scenarios. And I think that's that's wise. We we do see incre- we do see long term demand for hydrocarbons in our outlooks, um, and so there is a place and a role. But we do see companies having to compete on carbon in that world too.
0: Okay, so there's a possibility we are going to have to compete on carbon. we We may see the energy transition shrink demand for 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 oil. Uh, gas, I think everybody agrees, will be somewhere further into the future. Um, and and we'll and we'll have to see it. maybe I'll, I'll close on this point, Kevin. And this is one of my criticisms of of Alberta, and particular uh, Premier Daniel Smith and the UCP government i don't think they have a strategy for different scenarios i've read their uh emissions reduction and energy development plan it's not a plan it's it's a, basically a compendium of all the things that they're doing or what's going on in in the uh uh in the in the province with some vague hand waving towards you know hydrogen and and other low emission fuels um so I don't think there is a plan, and I think there really desperately needs to be a plan so that the province and the industry is better prepared for a structural change that every you know we can agree on is, is coming. We don't know when it's coming. Uh, we can disagree about that, but we know it is is coming. So Kevin, you've provided a lot of really interesting background on this, uh, and I appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast.
1: Yeah, it was a pleasure. I would add one thing in closing. If you think about governments, what the market wants and what companies want is a, a robust and clear and transparent parent framework for them to make decisions in. And policy stability, I think, has been something that's challenged in Canada. Um, the you know Can the policies being put in place withstand multiple terms of office? And that improves their investability. If they don't appear to be that, Canada it gets lumped as in higher risk for investment and that affects the cost of capital, which unnecessarily increases the cost of decarbonization for companies in Canada and complicates
0: those investment decisions as well. That is a very good note on which to end the interview. Thank you. Thank you.